so the other day I was talking to Annie and you ever have this is like one of those moments where like you realize that you you have a lot less information about certain things that you think you know a lot about like movies and then all of a sudden you realize that there's a lot of stuff you don't know or you begin to think that you've somehow Mandela affected yourself because like Annie was like we were watching um, a kid show and Sarah Silverman was on this kid show and don't ask and so well, she was like some of them have older guests a lot right like Yo yeah they do. yeah yeah that's the show specifically she was on was the YGG uh, the Yo Gabba Gabba extended cinematic universe and so um, it is good and she was on it and Annie was like yeah she was married to that guy Michael Sheen I said, I said, well, who's Michael? I said, Michael Sheen. I said, there's no Michael Sheen. I said, who are you thinking of? He said, Charlie Sheen? And she's like, no, Michael Sheen. I was like, there isn't such a thing as Michael Sheen. I was like, honey, you're thinking of Martin Sheen or Charlie Sheen? Famed American actors. Martin Sheen was in Apocalypse Now. I'm having this moment, right? And then she just Wikipedia's Michael Sheen and shows me this fucker. This this guy I've never heard of before that just pops out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, who the <laughs> fuck is this? He was in The Queen. He played Helen Mirren. I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> he played Tony Blair. He, he, played Helen, he played Helen Mirren. Famed American actor Michael Sheen, who played Helen, Helen Mirren in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> You know what's funny about that? Uh, I want to say it was about a year or two ago. I was watching something, and in like <laughs> the casting notes said Michael Sheen was in it. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But I'm watching it because I, I didn't really know who that was either. I just assumed it was one of the Sheens, like right. the Forgotten Sheen. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching nope. this whole movie. I'm like, nobody in this movie looks like a Sheen. I'm so confused. And normally I Wikipedia. No, yeah, I was. I, I normally Wikipedia these things, but like, just to spite myself, I was like, I'm not Wikipedia this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait this through, and I'm gonna find that Sheen brother. Never happened. And then I Wikipedia it, and I found like, no, it's, it's a British guy. It's a British Sheen. It's terrible. It was terrible a feeling. Britisher. Terrible feeling. And the second, the second thing is, I found a sword this weekend um some people say you don't find a sword that's not true you can find swords you just need to be looking in the right places like your parents garage which might or might not have been cleaned in 40 years that would be where you'd find a sword that's where you'd find a sword it is it's where you'd find a sword and i was looking for nails which were buried in a box in the corner of the garage so as my was working my way through the garage i found it was glowing like a relic would like in a movie it was glowing and i was like what is this and i turned and i was like it's an actual fucking sword (laughs) it's kind of like a weird roman gladius it's too long it's not historically accurate but it's very cool and um i knew my destiny from there was to kill and dethrone god So yeah, you can find swords. No, anyone tells you that you can't find a sword. You just you're not looking in the right places. And you're not looking hard enough. That's the illegal screen. Uh, we're a podcast for weird pop culture, the NBA, and the many places where they cross over, or where we think that they should. I'm Brian Ressler, and I'm Liam Green. 
This is episode 34, and thank you for setting the screen with us. It's episode 34, Summer <laughs> Hasn't Yet Begun. Uh, it's uh, We've already survived the birth and death, though, of White Boy Summer. It died mercifully. It, it died. It's dead. I don't it know. It doesn't feel dead to me. It died in its sleep. Chet Hanks died, and that's what killed it. <laughs> A lot of people don't know this yet. They're trying to keep it under wraps, but that's what happened. Um, he, he, and that's how all foul Eldritch things should go, really. Yet from the ashes of it, we found someone so hot, so insanely radiant, it pains to gaze upon their sublime form. We have on deck today John, a.k.a. a guy named John, or underscore a guy named John, on the pod. He is the co-host, co-host of Friends with Boredom, shout-outs to Chris, host of the Magic Bugaloo podcast, and a close-up magic contributor stationed at Adulture Base's Omega Wing, designated as Orlando. Give it up for John, everybody. Hey, hey guys. John. Thanks for having me. By the way, uh, your little introduction for me. I wasn't sure if you were going to bring me into it or if you were still talking about the sword. <laughs> it's both. It's both. It's both. It really is. Um, so today we're going to be discussing Adam Wingard's The Guest, an yes. action horror thriller hybrid uh, that has stolen the hearts of most who've seen it, with some exceptions. After that, we'll be talking about Magic the Gathering, the popular trading card game by Wizards of the Coast. Wait, what? Yeah, because talking the wrong John for that. No, no, it's the right John because talking about the Magic franchise is too painful. No, for real, we're actually going to be talking about the Orlando Magic front office and what Shaq would or wouldn't do for a Klondike bar. Because <laughs> if we get John Burr on here, he will talk about Magic the Gathering. That's one day that will happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. So we're talking about the guest, and we got a new segment. 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 Synopsis in 30 seconds. Okay, one brave soul. No, 60 seconds. It's 30. I changed it. What? I changed it. I want to make it harder. Okay. In the last seconds, you and, bastard. And the brave soul is going to provide us a synopsis of this film in 30 seconds. If you go over 30, you forfeit your soul. Very simple terms. It's quite simple. Records will be kept until I forget about this segment and we don't do it next episode. And it becomes <laughs> something that is completely forgotten. So, uh, and you can't cheat. You can't just say the guest is a movie. That doesn't count. Okay. That's eh, automatically out if you try that. No cheating. If you're not getting uh, to at least 20 seconds and feeling a little breathless, you're not doing it right. Okay. So, all right. Which one of us wants to go today? I feel like everyone should try. Everyone should try. I like that idea. Yeah. Okay. That should be on a t shirt, by the way. Everyone mm-hmm. should try. <laughs> yeah. Just as a general statement, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Everyone should try. And then on the back, it says uh, hashtag rise and grind, hashtag uh, positivity, hashtag why <laughs> can't we laugh, love. live, laugh, love, hashtag why can't we work six days a week and grind uh, seven days a week? Uh, um, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Hashtag okay. invincible. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Who wants to go first then? Or do you want to draw straws in this one? I'll be honest. I got like three <laughs> words into it, and I was like, you know what? I'm. I don't know if I'm brave enough to to go past those three words, but I feel like my. It's not even three words. It's like a, a short sentence. It's like I'll I'll, I'll give it a go. Okay. Elseworld. Right. Ryan Gosling, uh, shows up at a family's doorstep, and uh, he knows their son, and then 
action happens. And violence. Okay. See, just a single sentence took up that much time. Yeah. Edge of your seat. Edge of your seat. I like that. Oh, Liam, no. You ready to go? Um, okay. And go. The Guest is a film by Adam Wing- uh, Wingard, a action horror hybrid about a mysterious soldier who comes home to visit a family of a guy who was supposedly in his unit. And mystery and horror ensues because he may not be who he seems. Not bad. Not bad. I'm last. <clears throat> All right. Go. <clears throat> the Guest is a film by Adam Wingard, uh, which stars a uh, Costco slash discount version of uh, Ryan Gosling uh, about a mysterious drifter that comes to visit a family after they learn <laughs> that their son has been killed in a war overseas. He meets the daughter, he meets his son, and then teaches uh, them life skills, but then turns out to actually be a villainous individual who has nefarious ideas in mind. Uh, and uh, then the company tries to get him back because he's actually a genetic project gone wrong. Hijinks ensue. Five, four. You made it. You get. You got twenty five seconds. Did it. Did it. I wanted to push it to the edge. My goal is to get an average of twenty nine point five seconds every episode. Are you describing my sex life or? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you chose to say that. We didn't. We didn't drag it out of you. It's. That's it's what she said. That's <laughs> fair. Okay, so we know that we know the general synopsis of the film. As you guys know, uh, going forward, uh, typically there's going to be spoilers. Um, uh, yeah. If you guys have listened to the pod enough times, you know we 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 definitely don't leave anything out unless it's maybe the end of the film or something critical that we feel should be discovered on your own. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm going to start out by talking about kind of how we each saw this movie. How did we each find this movie, sure. and what's kind of our individual backgrounds? So I don't know if you guys remember. I don't know if they I'm sure they had him up in Massachusetts or wherever you guys were when this movie uh, was first released. But movie stop. And there was an there was an advertisement when I went to movie stop uh, with the guest. I didn't know who Dan Stevens was. The poster looked kind of cool, but I didn't pay any mind. Uh, While I'm in the store, I run into an old friend from high school, my friend Josh. And we, we briefly catch up, and he's like, dude, have you seen The Guest? And I was like, no, I saw the poster for it. He's like, you got to see it. And I was like, why? And he's like, dude, imagine the first Terminator having sex, like the, the story, not actually Terminator having sex with Ryan Gosling from Drive, but like those two movies had sex, and then uh, The Guest <laughs> There's came slash fix somewhere of yeah. the T-800 making love to Ryan Gosling. It oh, is. Yeah, there has to somewhere. Yeah, so essentially that's what sold me on the movie. I didn't watch it right away, but I think within the week I did. I, I think it was on Netflix actually around that time, and I watched it, and I was glued to the screen the entire time, and I think I watched it again the next day because I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, the way that I came about to finding it is I was actually interested in the film, um, not because of like, uh, anything I had heard about it at first, um, but rather because of the writer, um, Simon Barrett, Simon Barrett. Thank you. You had wrote, um, you're next. So when I saw your next, I was like, this movie rules. What else has he written? Like, what else is this guy kind of responsible for? And I knew he was close with the director, Adam Wingard and VHS, all that stuff. 
but uh, that's what I found out is like he wrote this film called The Guest and and that it was coming out or it had just come out. And so I was really hyped to see it. So I checked it out and I think I saw it on Netflix as well. I don't think I actually rented it or anything. I think I saw it on Netflix as well. Like it had only been a year after it came out and I think it was already on Netflix. Um, so I watched it and I, I absolutely love the film watched it again yesterday and i know i watched it sometime in between there so i think it's my third viewing now and i actually have some different feelings about a lot of the stuff in this movie now than when i first saw it but um mm-hmm. that's uh, something we'll get into um so yeah okay personal histories out of the way cool cool what was everyone's first impressions when i didn't sorry, get no, wait, to Liam, do yeah, my no. personal <laughs> i'm moving too fast i'm too fast right now Okay, too fast, too furious. Liam, hit You're us. You're not on the Benadryl this time? I'm not on the Benadryl, I know. I should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'll be quick. There isn't. It's not that sophisticated a story. Not dissimilar to Brian's, I had seen, I had seen Your Next at the urging of a friend who is not a huge horror film guy. Not an anti-horror guy, it's just not really his bag. Right. But he loved absolutely loved your next and had been raving about it for forever and it showed up on either netflix or hoopla the free library app and um from there um so i watched it and i was like oh this absolutely this rules this was fantastic this is everything that i want out of this type of movie and i didn't even i just didn't know it because i didn't know what i was looking for and um so after and i had heard about the guests but i had lost before like around the time when it came out but i had lost its connection to wingard and somehow didn't immediately like after seeing your next i didn't immediately pursue his other movies and then when i got back around to it that was the first one i went on uh and yeah uh, as as with your next both these were on streaming and the guest is just such a it's such an audacious weird little nightmare like it's in its way it's a very perverse comedy not unlike mm. your next and, right yeah although perhaps yeah. slightly less so and yeah it it knows what its dues are to the action and horror films that are its inspiration. It's not shy about showing them and, but it does it in a very fun way. Like you don't feel like you're getting uh, like Tarantino reference overload. Like you do in Tarantino's lesser work. Right. Um, And it just organically moves and Stevens is captivating in it. Um, Yeah. People seem to have like mixed opinions of him as an actor, and I've seen him in a lot of things. And sometimes he doesn't work, but he's fucking great in this. Like I don't know. Oh, who, yeah. I like people have compared him to the Gosling Drive character. I can't imagine Gosling doing that. It just it just wouldn't work. It's it's kind of a. I think it's be. I think it is a funny comparison, and you'll see it come up. I think it might even be mentioned in two of our IMDb roundups. Um, but. It, it's funny how often reviews actually mentioned this film directly as sort of like creating a discourse and a relationship with films like Drive, 
which is weird to me because I think the only way you could ever see the correlation is like, okay, Dan Stevens and Ryan Gosling are two like tall, built, like well built, um, handsome dudes. Uh, and that's about the extent of it because the characters they play are polar opposites. Yeah. And like the only other. Uh, the driver Sorry. is a no it's okay like the driver is a is a weird cipher and is impenetrable and difficult to understand and and there's only things you can kind of garner from his actions and he's so taciturn that he's like removed from the picture sort of like les samurai and like a Mel, like jean-pierre melville crime films yeah um like they're so diligent professionals that they don't have anything else to their life or personality other than what they do and then you have uh, Dan Stevens character who is basically a pretty charming guy. All things considered, he's kind of the dude you'd want to be like your big brother or a close friend, or he seems like such a stand up guy at first. And that's of course, part of the film's appeal is selling you this veneer and then showing you who this person really is or what they're capable of. And that's the point of the movie. I, I think it's a false equivalency to compare the two because the two just aren't they're not even going for the same thing but a lot of reviews mention it a lot of reviews and a lot of critics really wanted to believe like this is somehow a dialogue with drive and i don't i don't see the connection i guess they were harping on the fact that um driver forges an accidental connection with this family and becomes their guardian whereas david collins but um i'll refer to him as the guest because it makes more sense Um, yeah in fact, they should have put that in the title uh, credits that it was David Collins. Slash yeah, I would have said, yeah, yeah, that's what like I was Michael thinking. Myers um, slash The Shape would have made, you know, mm-hmm. same, same exactly. sense. But. Yeah. yeah, Driver uh, come accidentally becomes associated with a family that he grows to care for, despite all of his whatever's in his history, which I've always theorized is child abuse and wants to be their guardian and takes the opportunity to do so whereas this is a guy who deliberately man like forces himself into uh, the structure of a family to which he does not actually belong but has an attachment to mm-hmm. because of having served with their son in war whereas driver more or less does make things better for the people he runs into provided they're not pointing a gun at him the guest makes everything quite, quite worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's the best kind of comparison route to take. So, John, when you saw this movie, what drew you to it? What did you love about it when you first saw The Guest? What made it so kind of electrifying? Because I think you'll see later on when we get to the roundup portion, like there's a lot of a lot of people just... I'll, I'll say this now. I actually had to work pretty hard to find reviews sorted by most helpful that weren't glowing. This is a really well-loved <clears throat> film uh, by a lot of people. So it, it, and it did quite well for itself financially too at the box office, surprisingly, uh, given how low its budget was it decent returns. I wouldn't say overwhelming, but for something that actually had to be, tested twice for, for our audiences um pretty surprising anyways uh john what what kind of drew you to the film what felt so different about it so unique so you know electrifying so there's two things and they kind of tie in together actually so like i said i didn't really know who dan stevens was i'd never heard of him 
So as I'm watching the movie, like immediately, you know, like this guy isn't who or what he says he is. And so the entire movie I'm, I'm watching and I'm thinking like, who the fuck is this guy? But also I'm watching Dan Stevens's performance and I'm like, I just, as an actor, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? (laughs) And I was just like, just so, you know, enamored by, by what I was watching. Uh, I like, I couldn't pull myself away, but also I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for these over the, I don't want to call it over the top, but it is sort of over the top. Uh, these over the top, like campy action films, like tongue in cheek type of things, obviously, you know, with bigger budgets, you get John wick, uh, you know, shoot him up, crank things like that, like mm-hmm. drew me into it. But I do think there was a level of like groundedness mixed in with the camp that I, I, I don't really feel like you often get. So it was just, yeah. it just felt fresh to me. And not very often do I watch it. I love movies. Not very often do I watch a movie and think, well, this is kind of fresh, you know? So I think between feeling like this was something new and also being, I guess, hooked on whatever narrative was being pushed. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I was really into it. But I did want to say... And I don't know if this will come up later, but are we sure that the guest was a villainous character? Are we positive about that? Because on first viewing, I thought he was. I thought it was like all a facade selfishly, but then I'm almost positive there's a there's a point towards the end where he's telling them to kill him because he couldn't stop even if he wanted to. And mm-hmm. I interpreted that as him wanting to stop. He didn't want to do these things, but he's been quote unquote activated. Yeah. Did and you he guys says get that? Like, is that overly obvious or no, I don't think so because everything about the, the guest as a character is stooped in purposeful, deliberate ambiguity because it can always be read one of two ways. Like even at the end when he's like, when he says uh, to Luke, the, the younger brother, he's like, I don't blame you. I would have done the same thing. And he's been like stabbed in the chest and everything. And, and he, he gives like a thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> like a One ironic like, moment after saying, I don't blame you. I would have done the same thing. You know, I mean, just good idea. And just thumbs up after having this kind of connection moment where he's also like, I can't stop doing this. This is, this is what I do. And it's really weird because you don't know. It's like a rabid dog. Right. It's like if it was kind to you and it walks up and, you know, the dog licks your hand and you don't think anything of it. And then the next day the dog bites your hand. You wouldn't understand why, because he's he presented himself as this normal guy. And I think there's something about that, John, that's actually really interesting about this movie, which I'm sure will come up time and time out again, that this is a movie that purposefully uses its ambiguity to the best extent it can. Much like Halloween, much like the Terminator, the less you know about the villain, the better off the villain becomes. Because in this portion, unlike the shape in Halloween or the T-800 in Terminator, which is a machine and is incapable of expressing any emotions or thought um, other than just a, you know, a, a basic interactions is able to, you know, to accomplish its mission. Uh, he's a character and he's a person, but you also don't know how much of a machine he is. Because we really don't know the extent of his programming. There's one line that was really illuminating for me. Speaking about this, guys. There was one line last night that was really illuminating for me. When um, the younger sister is talking to Lance Reddick's character. 
And she mm-hmm. she says she's like, well, it was a really great idea for you guys to experiment on a psychopath. And he she he goes Lance Reddick's character says, well, from all we knew, he was he was the ideal soldier. Yeah. Which makes you go, well, wait a minute. From all you knew. So was he actually a psychopath to start? Did this yeah. just make him even stronger and more dangerous? Or did you guys like find it out the hard way that this conditioning created this? And now you don't know whether the evil was innate or it was a creation. And then you you walk right back into this perfect combination of Terminator and Halloween again. So I think that's what I use as my guiding point with how I look at him as a character. Same thing and spoilers, obviously, when he stabs the mother, it yeah, it, it feels like a moment where he didn't want to do it. He really didn't want to do that. And he does say, I'm sorry to the mother and father both before he kills them. Um, the father's is a little bit more anticlimactic, of course. Um, but the the mother's is as a real like almost a hesitancy, almost a, you know, he almost hesitates, but at the same time, you're just not sure. And that's what makes it so good. He doesn't kill either of them brutally or sadistically. It's like once to the heart in both cases. It's like just this is the quickest way you can die. And yeah, you can make of that what you will, I guess. In terms of the uh, question you posed of was this a psychopath who training made worse or was this a quote unquote good soldier who this super soldier type experimenting drove crazy i've always been inclined to pick the latter but i'm sure there are other people who watch this and pick the former yeah it's almost like a mirror it's almost like a mirror test because the film gives you so little evidence really it's all steeped in ambiguity and it's almost just how you feel innately when you see it. it's going to reinforce how you feel coming out of it. I, I feel because it doesn't really ever give you a, like the, the his there's things that are just so purposefully constructed. And that's what I do love about the movie, like with the son, uh, with uh, teaching him, like kind of like how to fight, like how to throw a punch and like giving him his knife and like mm-hmm. teaching him all these life skills, like valuable life skills and um and he could have easily once he literally interrogates him and says you know hey where is your sister did she tell anybody about this oh yeah and it's okay i know i know you killed the guy who was supposed to be regional manager you know i know you did that and it's okay like i'm okay with that like the little brother also is just like yeah it's it's cool that you killed someone i get it and he's like well that's great and he sees it almost as this moment of connection or He's just like, oh, now I know I have to kill everyone because I know I'm up. Like, I know my identity has been compromised. And now this is like his activation moment. And he's like, I can't kill him here because I'm in a school and I'll be found out or something. Or there's no way I can escape, which doesn't add up, which is another thing where I go. I wonder if it was one of those moments where he was like, I don't want to kill him because I actually like him. You know, I don't want to kill these people, but now I can't stop myself from doing it it's it's really interesting it's really that's probably the number one question of the movie i think is how much of it was real like how much of it was a is an honest connection and how much of it is just him being him see when i watched the movie the second time like and i've seen it i think four or five times now 
the second time I watched it, or maybe it was the third time. Either way, I got the sense that those connections were real. I think they, like, I, I do think he genuinely bonded with that family. Right. I don't think he wanted to kill people. I always suspected that whatever it is that the government or the military did to him or turned him into, he, almost like a robot in a sense, was activated. And li- like quite literally, I think very literally, he couldn't stop. You know, I think instinctually, whatever they did, his quote unquote program uh, programming is the culprit behind why he has to do these things because he's got to keep, you know, whatever's been done to him uh, safe, secret, but you know, whatever it is, he's, you know, I, I like to conjure up this image in my mind that the government invested millions of dollars into this one person. Of course, there's going to be some sort of, you know, fail safe, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of sort of how I, I see it. Cause if you think about it at the end, when you find out he's not actually dead and he's walking away, he had, he had an opportunity to continue to rampage. Yeah. But he was safe as, as far as everyone else knew he was dead. You know what I mean? So he was safe. He didn't have to kill, but he could have, and he didn't. Right. So, right. I just, I don't know. I, I'm. I, it's a good point. That's actually a very good point. Is like, oh, the conditioning gets turned off because he's like, well, now everyone thinks I'm dead. There's a fire again. The teeth are missing. Body's unrecognizable. So clean getaway. And then there's exactly. the malice left, where you kind of have to wonder, well, what if he's just going to hound the two of them to the rest of their the end of their days because he's. He's like that and he can't turn it off. But then you wonder how much of it is programming and will it just turn off because now he's met the conditions again of not existing anymore. It's a great ending for that reason. That's one of the strongest aspects of this film, in, in my opinion, is the ending. It's the classic Halloween ending. They look up and Michael Myers isn't there. And then you kind of yeah. want they show this house again. And you're like, oh, man, the shape, the evil is never going away. You can't kill it. A bullet won't help, won't stop it. It's just. And also, too, he takes he takes a um, not a crazy amount of punishment, but he definitely is would die without getting treatment. And then I wonder also at the end of the film, too, other than like having a little bit of a limp, I wonder how like un almost impossible he is to kill at a certain point where it's just like, oh, I wonder what you would actually have to do to kill this guy because he might not be human human um, anymore. So anyways, all great points, all good topics. This deals with a lot of, I think, the the reason why this film is loved is because of the interpretations people have for it. But I want to talk a little bit about the background of the film. Starting as a talking point is uh, the origins of this movie. So not necessarily how it came to be, but more or less that when it was made, this film was a lot longer. A lot longer. Uh, so release the yeah, Wingard like 20 cut. 20 minutes longer. Okay, release the Wingard cut. If you don't... <laughs> There will be consequences. No, there there was a longer version of this movie. And there's a very good reason why it was cut down to the length it is. It's a pretty sharp, I think, like hour, 20 minutes, hour, 25 minutes. It's not long at all. No. But they cut they cut around 20 minutes that basically explained exactly who the guest was. His background, the the procedures that were done. There was a lot more explanation. And audiences hated that. They 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 hated it. So they cut it all yeah. out. And then the next version they showed, there was pretty much a, 
uh, a version where people didn't have enough information. So they had no understanding as to why all of a sudden he, the military shows up out of nowhere and the film takes the turn that it does, which is one of the best turns in my opinion, just like film history. It's, it's an ad lib basically. It's like crazy stalker, super hard to kill, really competent and military intervenes turns into an action thriller like it's one of the (laughs) weirdest ad libs in film history and they took it and ran with it which i fucking love but um that we reintroduced lance reddick basically kind of explaining just enough to give us what we need and that's how this film took its final shape i think this is kind of a good chance for us to talk about how the full release or the full idea of like a director's cut isn't always necessarily the best uh nor is it necessary and and this is an instance where the less you know the better now i know recently of course we know about the actual sander cut is a much different film and a much different topic but i think this is still a good way of looking at it from the opposite point where less really can be more um and i think all the ambiguity we've discussed so far all of our different interpretations, the different things we picked up on only exist in this film because we don't have that additional 20 minutes of cut footage to tell us exactly what to think, exactly what to feel, exactly how to interpret the film. It it works better because it is shorter because it doesn't want to give you as much. And I think that's really important to, to recognize. I want to say something really quick. Regarding yeah. That. Cause I want to, I want to know if you guys have something else to say, if you guys feel differently or if you actually think this would benefit from maybe a longer version or or a different version of it see i think if if you know obviously you brought up like certain films like the snyder cut improved with all that extra story probably still about 30 minutes too much but still like whatever that's neither here nor there but then there's a film like for example donnie darko which i think the director's cut i i just couldn't get into um right i thought there was too much information given and those those moments in that film where I would watch, you know, I've seen it a million times and I can watch the original over and over and over. And when I'm all finished with it, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be thinking about this for the next 48 hours. I'm going to, I'm going to be diving into, you know, the, the books that, uh, what is it? The history of time travel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, all those things I want to, I want to know the mythology. I want to know, I want to know every little detail about the plane, so on and so forth. The same with the guest. You know, I watched the movie and I spent uh, a good week just reading up on everyone's opinions and theories and, you know, kind of tying it into my own beliefs about what I saw and what transpired and all this. I, I think if you were to give more context into why David does the things that he does, mm. I'm sure I still would have enjoyed the movie. But I don't know if it would have stuck the way it has. I don't think we'd be doing this podcast if we had. I don't this think information. so. So I mean, no. the the last yeah. twenty minutes of conversation we wouldn't have had. There would be no reason to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything would have been made for us. We would have had no reason to pontificate or or try to interpret what's been shown. We just would have said, "Well, the film is very instructional. It tells you." There's really no questioning, or maybe there'd be one or two things that are amb- ambiguous, but probably because of a lack of time again and they're like well we can't have this be a two hour you know two and a half hour long film or something it's already long i just can't imagine this film's pace 
working at that two hour point either or close to two hour point no i can't way. imagine the film's pace working because it's such a sharp and snappy film like very very efficient with its time and i i think it's kind of a miracle that this is one of the rare instances where a double test audience made a film better yeah i don't know who that test it audience might be was the only it might be the only one because honestly every other test audience scenario ends up in disaster and this is the first one not only did they get a good test audience the first time the second time too where they just could pick pinpoint the one thing they needed was just a tiny bit more explanation not over explanation just a tiny bit more and it, it made this made this film so important to remark on that because i can't think of another instance where a test audience made the film better and again where the filmmakers made a choice to actually say no we really need to cut down not add um so that was this is kind of a, a remarkable film in that sense another topic i wanted to talk about which is something i i thought of when i was watching the film last night and i don't know if you guys thought about this but we talk about themes a lot on the illegal screen that's kind of, I think, how we mo- approach most films from the start is what's the, th- the theme of the film. You know, and even even films like The Night Comes uh, for us has a very distinct theme. But I actually feel because this film is so much of a chameleon, much like the guest as a character, it's hard to decipher what the theme is. I had trouble parsing it out. So who wants... Did anybody feel that there were actually like really overt themes that you guys picked up on um, that you think kind of the film leans into a little bit? There's certainly a possible one that comes to mind and it's it's PTSD. It's just trauma. Okay. Like specifically the trauma of the Iraq war. Right. Um, like, Within the framework of this plot, every like all of the guests' uh, aberrations and damage stem from stem from his the special program that he was in, like being in special forces or whatever. But and then a an experimental thing after that, but. Mm-hmm allegorically speaking, how is that different from just any other deployment that fucks up a person? Right. So right. It's certainly it's... there if you want to assign that. I don't know. Like we we can debate about whether that was Barrett or Wingard's authorial intent, but I don't think it was. I think it's I don't think it was either pretty much honestly. right there. Yeah. You I, don't? I, I, okay. I don't. I don't because the trauma argument for me doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because at the beginning of the movie, you're thinking actually that that is the core concept of this movie. It is literally a woman who has lost her son. She there's the other side of it is perhaps maybe it's more familial trauma. I I don't know. Well, it's a thing like I do. uh, It is is one of those. I don't know. It's tough because you see this woman and she's this walking wound and she then all of a sudden by like it it literally like a a lightning bolt sees someone that can connect her with the dead and is able to finally be like, oh, I can start this healing process. And the father is is just as troubled. But the son and the, the, the son, his brother and the sister who are in line with 
the age of what Caleb would have been, the the son that was killed in the war, mm-hmm. don't seem to respond at all to this. They don't really seem to be traumatized, or if they are, they don't display it because they're kids, and that's not they're teenagers specifically, not kids. They're teenagers and well, a young adult and a teenager, and that's not how they're going to respond either. So if they are hurting, they're not going to show it openly. They're going to want to conceal it. And you kind of get a little bit of that with the daughter when she's hanging out with her boyfriend. And and she's like, you remember how Caleb was like, you know how Caleb was. And he's like, oh, yeah, right. That's all, you know, like even the even the son himself, you actually don't know anything about aside from what little you can infer from the brother and the sister. But they don't seem to respond to him as being like this panacea or way of dealing with their trauma and the loss of a son. It just is this guest. It, it, it's a. It almost feels like a folk tale, and it's hard to parse out a, a distinct theme from that with mm-hmm. trauma being it. Because like I, I think of trauma, and I think of films like the um, Hereditary or the Babadook, being films that are like those are films that are explicitly about trauma. That's all they deal in. That's that is their. That's where they invest themselves. And I don't see that here it, it like it, it wants to be there and like i thought my my first thought i'll say this what i thought is i thought it was like a military industrial complex criticism at first but then i'm like there's not enough in the film to actually justify it they're like there's at one least, well there's, there's not enough that's directly stated and then that yeah. brings to mind how much do you need to state openly a critical point you want to make right how much is required like, how like is there a requirement to be? i mean it's just it's so on the nose though that to me like okay i'll just i mean i'm this is my feeling is like i feel it's in it's a it's a really tremendous exercise in style over substance i i don't i don't find it to be a substantial film and i feel like all the themes that are there that seem to be apparent really don't manifest into anything that feels like it has weight to it. It's very surface level and it's also in a a troubling place because it can't, it can't codify or solidify any of its thoughts because it needs to preserve the ambiguity of the narrative and the, and the guest as a character. So to preserve it, it can't tell you too much. It can't sit on one side too long and I don't know that that feels troubling to me in a way that I can't quite articulate, honestly. I guess, but most of most of Adam Wingard's early films definitely have themes, like Your Next does. It's class, and A Horrible mm-hmm. Way to Die does. In that, it's not only um, it's about all sort like A Horrible Way to Die is about. So very many things about uh, alcoholism, um, yeah, like misogynistic violence, uh, the cult of personality that serial killers develop. Mm -hmm. Like it's clearly about all of those things. And if you want to see a movie, like that's one of the most like just fucking that movie's nuts. A horrible way to die. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should have. But it will great film. It will fuck you up. Um, 
and your next will fuck you up just in a different way. And it's also like it's an overt satire, satire, parody, be. whichever. And, um, yeah, it has both. It has elements of both in it. It really does. Yeah. It has elements of both. I. It's not as blatantly a satire as something like uh, Ready um, or Not. Ready or, or Not. Right. Yeah. Ready or Not. Or the yeah, it was the one where they're being hunted. I have yeah. a good story about your next and misinterpreting dialogue. Before. Um, when I saw it in theaters of my buddies, I thought the film actually had a lot bigger connection between some of the guys who were in the house. Uh, when they're being interrogated by the person who eventually is like revealed to be like the inside source of like telling them when the family was going to be there and the money and everything. Mm-hmm. I-, I thought he said to his buddy, we served together. And I was like, oh, they're ex-military. That makes sense. Like, But the actual line is, when I watched it with subtitles, we surfed together, which is <laughs> infinitely funnier and infinitely better. But I was like talking to my friends about how this is such an important line of dialogue when we saw it in theaters. And everybody was like, oh, I guess that's what they said. But I had a buddy who was like, I don't know. Is that what they said? And I said, yeah, they said they served together. That's wrong. It's patently wrong. So anyways, just a funny little aside. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, John, what are your thoughts? Themes? I mean, what do you think about this? Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm particularly insightful about these things. I kind of just watch movies and decide whether or not I like them based on what transpires. I, I You know, occasionally I, 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 I you know, typically I, because I'll stress myself out. If I, if I start to dive too deep into themes, I'll stress myself out and I, I just won't enjoy the movie as much. Mm. Uh, you know, I guess from a superficial standpoint, I mean, I think everything in the movie is about choice or the lack thereof, you know? Mm. So like, interesting. Uh, the, the yeah, family chose to take, uh, the guest in, right. Uh, yes. the family chose to, uh, I guess abide by his quote unquote teachings, uh, you know, his advice, his encouragement, uh, you know, when, when he goes to the party, uh, with the sister, uh, there was a ton of things happening there that were all like, it's it, it, choice versus consequence essentially. Right. And then it kind of right. ties into what I said earlier is like, at the end, I don't think his character, Dan Stevens Dan Stevens character had any sort of choice in what transpired over the last. 25 30 minutes of that film so i think it's like it's just a stark contrast but i think just i i don't know if there's any like overt themes happening truthfully i think it's just an homage to like old 80s horror sci-fi thrillers you know like terminator uh halloween things like that i just uh, i don't know i guess i mean you can think of it as endorsing that line of thinking it you can think of it as like a transition film for Wingard where he moves away from more specifically theme driven, but still genre pictures into more uh, bigger budget uh, franchise pictures like his, his Blair Witch film, which is interesting. I won't exactly the say the last 10 good. minutes are interesting. I haven't the seen that yet. Are- great the last 10 minutes are really good i remember watching that at your place and yeah the last 10 minutes are really good yeah really good it's worth the price of admission i could say that yeah um death note which we also watched together yeah 
one of the better adaptations. The manga hate what? I think it's a great adaptation. I like the manga. I thought it was fine. And I, yeah. I've I've watched the anime, and I think it's a great adaptation. I, I don't I know really a lot of find it to be. It, yeah, I and I understand why their points are valid, but I think actually with the material to adapt it into the part where it's like the the adaptation wrote. Uh, road they were taking was if you showed this to someone who didn't even know it was adapted would they be able to follow it and that's where it succeeds yeah. it's like you could show this to someone who does not know it's based on existing material and they'd be able to follow it and it still keeps at least the core ideas and concepts of death note there so i don't know i thought it was pretty successful all things considered and then after that it's uh Godzilla versus Kong. Monkey versus Lizard. Classic film. <laughs> I think there is actually something before that. Hold on, let me just check really quick. Yeah. Can I can I add? Um yeah. sure. you guys were talking about like Wingard, Wingard, whatever you say his last name, kind of transitioning into blockbuster or potential franchise territory. I think it should be noted that the idea of a sequel to the guest has been floating around for a few years. Now, by both him and Dan Stevens. So, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, given the success of Godzilla vs. King Kong and uh, what what's that thing he's got going on next that seems like relatively... He's doing... He's gonna... Face Off. Remake Face Off. Yeah. Like, oh if those, that does well. Supposedly. Like, it, it wouldn't surprise me that, that maybe he, he makes a passion project sequel or... Uh, the last time I read was, like, he was thinking about doing, like, a limited series or something as a sequel for the guest. that would actually make more sense to me than a film i think i think that would be the better route as a limited series and the guest the guestening or guest two, <laughs> guest vengeance uh guest two, guest harder um, or maybe he ties it into the godzilla and king kong like godzilla versus king kong versus <sighs> the guest well, he's Crazy already in it. He's in a frame in Godzilla versus and Lizard versus Monkey. He's in a frame. Are in you the fucking with me? I am. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get your hopes. If up you made there. me watch that movie all over again just to see that, like, I... <laughs> did you like that movie? I haven't. You know, this is the craziest thing, and everyone knows how huge of a Godzilla yeah. fan I am. I haven't watched it yet. I, I it's always been like every weekend it come it, like I'm like today's gonna be like, today is the weekend this is the weekend I'm gonna watch it and I still haven't watched it yet and I have no reason not to it's just I'm like oh no I want to watch these other three movies first because <laughs> one of the problems is the runtime I was like oh my god this movie's like two and a half hours long like I didn't realize Which it was movie? Godzilla versus King Kong no, it's, it's like not. no it's not it's what is like it, an hour hours? and forty minutes. Is it? It feels it's like short. it's two and a half hours, to be honest All right. with you. Well, it no, is, I can watch it's it. It's poorly paced. It's poorly paced. Right. The first well, hour, okay. I was hooked, and then I was just waiting for it to end. Okay. Okay. Well, I got to watch it. I got to watch it, regardless. I, I mean, yeah, I haven't seen it. I know. It's crazy, given how big of a Godzilla fan I am that I haven't yeah. seen that yet. But I, I will watch it. I just haven't just haven't gotten You haven't seen it. any of the movies in that franchise? I have, though. I have seen the Legendary Picture stuff. The first Godzilla, I absolutely adore. I love that fucking movie. And that was yeah, the first was. film, in, in theaters especially, when the skydiving sequence, as they show yeah. like the scale of Godzilla, is just a... They have it set to the Liggety music yep. from 2001. Yep, and it's one of those moments of pure like cinema, like a movie box moment. I'm like, holy shit, this is incredible. But the sense of like 
a, a like astonishing the gods kind of feel that movie has where you see Godzilla so infrequently, like maybe five minutes of that movie, you see Godzilla and he's so incredibly captivating and terrifying and powerful and primal and mm-hmm. uh, just animated. Uh, and I remember watching Godzilla uh, destroy, was it destroy all monsters? King of the monsters. No, King, King, of, the King monsters. of the monsters. King of the monsters. And other than it being like, other than destroying Boston in it with no people in it which is weird but whatever other than like destroying boston i was like oh this is the most piss boring thing i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> like even you have Ghidorah couldn't make it fun. even even Ghidorah couldn't make it fun and like that should be liam you're right man if you can't make Ghidorah work that's sad they they tried to do this weird godzilla versus destroya thing where they're like oh he's gonna go thermonuclear and he's gonna melt down I'm like, oh, that's kind of a cool way to reset the character. Like, you'll have one of the the spawn become the next Godzilla, like in Destroya, where it's like, oh my god, he's actually going to go thermonuclear. Like, this is a terrifying Earth-changing event because a thermonuclear bomb being detonated is a huge deal. Yeah. But it <laughs> it never got there. It was just like, oh no, we're gonna cool him down with some water and some kisses and a nice blanket on the head, and it's all good. I'm like, oh. That that lost all of its teeth real quick. It just felt. I, I think I saw the only thing I could call is I called. I haven't seen Godzilla versus King Kong, but I know Mecha Godzilla's in it, and I called it when the the teaser at the end of Godzilla versus. Um, I'm like they are going to do. Me- they're either going to do Mecha Ghidorah or Mecha Godzilla because they showed the head being possessed by the terrorist organization. I'm like, yeah, it's going one way or the other. It's Mecha something. You don't show a a severed part of something to be like, yeah, this is just here for fun. Rodan was great. I'll give it that. All right. I don't want to rant anymore because I will. (laughs) But in general, I love it to be to be short, John. I love the first Godzilla film. I thought it was the best American interpretation of it. And everything else subsequently has been very kind of boring to me. And and I love Kong Skull Island. I thought that was yeah, cool. I loved that movie. That's a yeah. that's a bitchin' movie and a lot of fun. But uh, the the King Kong Peter Jackson one is this weird weird I don't mind movie. It. I don't it's just mind a bit it, too but long. I just but it's is it worth revisiting? Because I haven't seen it since it's it came worth out. revisiting. It's just it's just you're gonna feel like an enigma the whole time. It feels like this enigma. You're just a very it's a very puzzling movie in a lot of ways. It's so its grandiosity is so over the top that even now you're like, my god, how much did this movie cost to make? Like it's so layered and, and just unbelievable the amount of time they put into it. It's a weird movie, man. It's one of those weird, like, I feel like it would be the movie I'd make if someone's like, we want you to make Godzilla. Here's $500 million. What can you do? I'm like, I got a four and a half hour film here and it's going to rock your socks, buddy. And it's like, yeah, you should rethink that. It's like, no, no. The hour long wordless segment I have of the cosmos creation of Godzilla is totally worth it. You know, it's just one of those things where it's so. I mean, it might be. <laughs> I mean, imagine Terrence Malick makes Godzilla. That's my Godzilla movie. I'm not that watching is... that. I'm a sicko pervert, but that's <laughs> it, good. You shouldn't. Okay, I want to get us back on track. Um, so there was an interview with Roger Ebert, not the Roger Ebert, but off RogerEbert.com about the guest. 
And there's a line in here I want to I want to bring up because I thought it was actually really good. And Adam, Adam Wingard says this and uh, it's kind of riffing off of um, this interview that they were commenting on what Dan Stevens had done with um, Entertainment Weekly about preparing for the film and stuff and, and, and the type of film it was. Adam Wingard said, quote, our approach to genre and action is always more based on characters than it is on spectacle in some ways. Or at least the spectacle is based on the characters. We try to create a consistency of characterizations, and I think that's what makes a good horror or genre film. You have to believe that the characters have a consistent line of thinking that evolves as the film goes on. The action should take place because the characters make choices based on their own intelligence that is hopefully brought to life as the film moves forward. One of the delights of the film is how the audience is invited to be, quote, in on the joke end quote with dan's character we know he has a secret and we are able to share that knowledge with him which brings a great darkly comic tension to many scenes and so i kind of wanted to riff off of that because well i I, there is one line after this i will repeat this because it's worth mentioning dan stevens says in as sort of a commentary slash addition to that we wanted to tease the audience and be playful with them in terms of their sympathies for the character while not being too blatant about defining him as a hero or a villain. Audiences respond well to that approach because we're not patronizing them. We're not abusing their trust. We're letting them know that we'll be flipping the tone occasionally and we're not going to tell them when. It may make you laugh, it may shock or scare you. Predominantly, I think we're having fun with that sensibility. So between Wingard and Stevens in that line... I feel like that is the theme of the guest is kind of taking you for a ride. It's a roller coaster. It wants to make you know that this is the part where you laugh. This is the part where you get scared. This is the part where we shock you. This is the part where you get unnerved. This is the part where you have a setting shot that literally looks like an old school diorama you'd find at a Halloween horror store. When it's yeah. Halloween time, you go to Spirit Halloween and you see a diorama from Spirit Halloween and the main villain in it. And it looks like a cutout from a fucking Spirit Halloween store. This is a film that's so carefully engineered to make you feel all these things. But I think also, too, he taps into something really important there. He talks to Dan Stevens saying that we're not trying to patronize people. We don't want to patronize people. We want people to let them come to their own terms. So between Wingard's depiction of the film as being sort of this, as as Wingard's interpretation of the film and the filmmaking process as being something that's sort of like, it is what it is. This is what we set out to do. This is what we set out to create. And this is the way in which we interpret it as having tone and tonal shifts that are deliberate. And then Stevens kind of piggybacking off of that and confirming it and and saying how we want people to feel certain ways is that is that i i feel maybe that john you're right as a long-winded way of saying it that this is a film about choice the theme is choice and it's the director's choice and the mm. actor's choice to create this very rigid experience and it's a roller coaster so when i say an exercise in like style over substance it's not an insult it's because it's so well crafted. You don't even know you're participating in it until that moment. Uh, and I wanted that interview is not, that's just a, a snippet of it. There's a lot more there. I don't know if you guys read it or if you guys just heard that, but like if you, what you guys thought about that a little bit about that interview before we kind of cap it off and move on to the IMDb roundup. I didn't read that interview. 
I don't know anything about that interview <laughs> other than what you Excellent. just said. Every Good. interview I've I've read uh, about this film has kind of centered on uh, the future of that quote unquote franchise, and that was all done within the last like three months that I've read any interview about it. So yeah, I like that Barrett references Donald Westlake, aka Richard Stark. Um, one of I was going to say more writers. It- I was going to say that seemed like t- directly yeah. targeted at, at you. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the one of the great noir writers um, in either uh, guys, but particularly as Richard Stark doing the Parker novels, which became Payback, um, which is interesting. The, the director's cut of which is one of my favorite movies ever, 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 ever. Yeah. And yeah, they are very articulate folks. And you could be right that they weren't trying to really tell any distinct story. But I don't know. It's hard to precisely parse. Yeah. Okay, let's head off to... Wait, I need to say something. I just read the Wikipedia page. I I don't know why I haven't done this. Uh, (laughs) I I didn't do this prior. But, all right, so when we were talking about whether he's an evildoer, you know, or if he's like Mm -hmm. a good guy or like he's a victim of circumstance... What, what uh, Lance Reddick, by the way, has the greatest voice oh in all God. of Hollywood. When you're ready, Mr. Locke, you'll listen to what I'm saying. And then, when you and me run into each other again, you'll owe me one. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, he says that David was programmed to kill anyone. Programmed to kill anyone who might compromise his identity mm-hmm. and is unlikely to stop himself. So just had to throw that out there because again, yeah. it just reaffirms that I'm right. And I like being right because <laughs> I'm not often right. All right. So there's that. You can just delete the last 45 minutes of conversation and it. tie it right into the interview. We don't need to I discuss like anything further. Yeah. Let's just go. Let's just go right in the roundup. IMDb roundup. <laughs> Woo. We love it. Uh, you love it and we hate you it. You love it. We hate it. It's a special segment where we take three user reviews from IMDb sorted by most helpful and lose our minds in the process of reading them or sometimes actually learn something. Maybe you will too. We're going to start with our five out of ten. We're going to hit the middle. Okay. This is the guest. This was reviewed on September 6, 2014. And this is called A Total Mess is the title of the review. Imagine an episode of something as nuanced, understated, and gripping as an episode of Homeland gradually turned into something as darkly humorous and comic book-esque as an episode of Dexter. Throw in some action set pieces, I think you would not be too far away from what this is. It starts out well. A mysterious man turns up at the house of his slain comrade and offers touching words to his family, winning them into his confidence one by one, though in truth, their grief makes them easy prey. It continues to build well when he sorts out the son's high school tormentors in a way that will have you cheering. At this stage, the cover story is, uh, that he cares about the family is still plausible, but he's clearly someone with the capacity for extreme violence. The acting is uniformly excellent. However... In a bid to procure a large amount of firearms, he murders the arms dealer he is behind them from. The body count then starts to build implausibly quickly when the man who is standing in the way of the father of the family's promotion is also found conveniently dead. The actors are weird to harp on that, by the way, because it happens off screen. 
So it's a very weird thing to just zone in. I think people would forget that even happens if you weren't paying attention. Anyways, the actors are excellent, as I say, but even they seem progressively unconvinced by the story when some covert government unit turns up to claim the guest. Apparently, he was part of some kind of experiment which went wrong, but details on this are very sparse. The finale is camped up in the extreme and in the style more of an 80s B-movie, which would make sense if the first half was anything close to that type of film, but instead you're just left scratching your head. There are good moments. The acting is great. But don't be suckered in by the high ratings. This is not essential viewing. If you want a popcorn flick on a Saturday night, this is okay, I guess. But that's all. Your thoughts, gentlemen. <clears throat> Five out of ten. A total mess. The person who wrote that's a dick. <laughs> that's that, kind of. I mean, it's just everything that he or she found wrong or regarding the film or things they didn't like, like that was kind of the point. Yes, of right. The movie, like, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, and they speak so eloquently. Like, I wouldn't be able to write a review like that. So, like, I have to imagine they've got more than like seven brain cells. You know, there's no way that they watched they? that movie and it went <laughs> over their head. There's just no. There's just no way. There's not. Like, there just isn't a whole lot to that movie. You know, so like for it to go way over their head, I, I don't know. The guy's a dick. It sure is. Yeah. People are surprisingly unimaginative, including some of the most intelligent people on this earth, let alone people with mere average intelligence who decide they want to review things on imdb.com. And put in the effort to do it, too. I, I think it's an impressive review from the point that they actually succinctly mentioned everything we've talked about in this episode, but then mm-hmm. put a layer of, but it's dog shit. <laughs> on it yeah like that's what they put at the end of it like everything we just said and then if you like go back and sub in us saying but it's dog shit at the end of each point that would be literally their review so i think that's really interesting okay we're gonna we're gonna hit the cesspool let's go sicko mode one out of ten a sad day for humanity i've lost all faith this review is (laughs) this review is on january 31st 2015 The only reason why I can be bothered writing this review is because the film actually gets pretty good reviews by sources I normally trust and also got a pretty good write-up. And yet, it's hopeless. Really hopeless. Honestly, I've lost all faith. I can hardly breathe. I usually don't like to do this, but I have to point out that he spells gets with an apostrophe where (laughs) there is none necessary. And that he spells I can hardly breathe. He spells breathe as breath. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes just saying oh good catch good catch this film was just absolutely saying. impossibly ludicrously bad it started out parentheses almost okay but it rapidly sank into the most predictable stupid imbecile childish well poo okay in all seriousness yeah like winnie the pooh most of the acting is pathetic and entirely unbelievable <laughs> it's so bad that i wondered if i was watching a comedy that's clearly not the intention the music Oops. is like an 80s German porn movie. First of all, and I want to take an aside here. How much 80s German porn have you consumed where you know the soundtrack of 80s yeah, German porn? Yeah, like, I feel like this is more about you. That's a really weird thing to you know, put out there. Just saying, no shame, no kink shame there, but come on, bud. This storyline, <laughs> yeah, go for it. This storyline is so hopelessly predictable oh, that it frankly made me cringe. Our antagonist gives the son of the house a folding knife for protection, and he, of course, ends up killing the protagonist with said knife. Yikes. 
Yeah, it's the almost head. Like Chekhov's gun is a well-established dramatic right? principle. Mm-hmm. The head, or something like that, of the military police goes out on a hunt for David with a bit of backing, which rapidly gets killed off. What in heaven's name is he doing that for if the guy is so dangerous? The dad, <laughs> question. The dad gets killed on the head-on collision with, the da- with David, which David walks away from with a bit of a limp. What? And the ending in the Halloween setting, utter... <laughs> Utterly dilettante. I could go on and on. I need a drink. The misspellings in this make me feel like it might be a bit, but I don't think it's a bit. I don't think this is a bit. We've gone through these that feel that are confirmed bits, but this is not one of them. 56 out of 113 found this helpful. Uh, well, that means a lot of people didn't find it helpful. So exactly, that's which is what I said. It was actually really hard to find low grades where people found it helpful. So I don't. It's weird to me where he's talking about. They're talking about comedy in this, and it is again Why? over their head. It's it's like right. It's almost well, like I mean there is comedy, but right. It's like it's almost as if they're shifting the tone intentionally. Well, wouldn't you know it? They are. Wow. Crazy. You know, I, is... I just never understood, like, the one-star review thing. I like, or ten stars. Like, how, like, a one-star film, like, I don't even know if The Room quantifies as one star. Because it's it does. very difficult to make a <laughs> film. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, that, right. it could be. It could be. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just very difficult to make a film you know and if you can make it through an entire film like you watched it that means it's watchable which means does it there if you watched it for an hour and a half to two hours you know if you were actively watching it i misunderstood i thought you were saying if a movie is made that long no no like if you're watching no no if you're if you're able to complete a film like in one viewing like okay that's fair the film did its job Right, like sure. you were supposed to watch it, so I, I automatically, no matter what this guy said, just because he used an extreme, and if you if you end up choosing a ten, no, you chose a nine star review for the next one, so I'm not yes. gonna get it. If yeah. you had chose a ten star review, I would think that guy's a dick too. So yeah, right. I, I don't know. I just was before he even started typing, before you started reading the words that this person wrote, I was already ready to punch this guy in the dick. Yeah, we had some really interesting experiences with this this segment, and that's why I keep keep it coming because it's just so it's so gratifying to get like a finger on the pulse of the extremes of like your film going audience. And it just not shows just... how st- I don't even want to say how stupid people are, just how far up their own ass so many yes. people can be. Right, Definitely. right, Definitely. Okay, we'll hit our last review for this one, which is a 9 out of 10. The guest, one of the most stylish and fun thrillers of the decade, May 13th, 2015. It's a bold statement, but I stand by it. This film had everything I wanted and a hell of a lot more. The plot in a nutshell is that a guy named David Dan Stevens goes to the house of a soldier who is KIA and claims to have known him personally, so the family invites him to stay. Then things start happening, secrets come out, and shit goes down. Simple premise, and if it sounds familiar, it's probably because it's been done many times, but never quite with as much finesse as the guest. The writer and director of the same team that brought us Your Next and a few segments from VHS and VHS 2. Personally, I loved Your Next. It was a straight-up horror comedy with little to no surprises. 
Here, the duo hone their strengths into their magnum opus, so to speak. The guest is an action thriller, but there are a lot more elements at work. It's dramatic, it's funny, it's intense, and it gets pretty frightening at times. The scope seems very wide, but it all flows together without a hitch, and each emotional reaction keeps your eyes glued to the screen, waiting for what happens next. The guest is held together by its lead, Dan Stevens. I haven't seen him in anything before this, but he was flawless in this role as an enigmatic, seemingly charming family friend. David is immensely likable. Even when questionable things start happening, you still want to root for the guy. He just has a badass aura around him. Dan Stevens plays with him with such conviction that you can almost you can't see through him and you have no idea what is going on in his head, but you know there's more to him than meets the eye. When I say shit goes down in this movie, I mean it. Shit goes down. I won't spoil anything, but the guess is one of the most stylish, suspenseful, colorful, and downright invigorating third acts in a movie I've seen in a while. It's fucking magnificent. Some people were split on this opinion, but honestly, I thought it was an absolute blast. It takes place in a Halloween funhouse. As soon as it began, it turned into a giddy schoolgirl. Yeah, it's just that much fun. The first two acts are in place of impeccable as well, building up the tension and suspense to level tangibility that you can cut with a knife. The characters surrounding David are all great as well. They're a typical family, and although it may seem like they're just caricatures, they're completely convincing in their roles, largely due to realistic dialogue. Everything progresses believably and exactly how you'd want it to, and the predictability is a strength in this case because it gives the filmmakers a chance to make the simple premise as shiny and creative as possible. I was not bored for a minute of this movie. The soundtrack's phenomenal too. It's an 80s thriller vibe and a lot of dark electronic grooves, similar to those in Year Next, but even better. The guess is an action thriller buff's wet dream, and even if it flows, even if it throws in horror for good measure, it really is one of the most underrated movies of 2014, an experience that no thriller fan should miss out on. 245 out of 314 people found this helpful. Solid. It's glowing. It's a glowing review. It's a glowing review. It doesn't really dig too much into any faults or negatives with it, but I think if you saw any one of us writing that review at a lower score or similar score, there would probably be a little bit more like, but there are things that are kind of like, no, don't quite work all the way. It's a nice review. It's just really overly glowing and very flowery, but it's not necessarily bad. It's that person's interpretation of the work. And it's a, it's one that's very diligent and like, I love this movie and I want you to know I love this movie. And they're really not going to look for reasons to not love it. That's okay, too. It's it's just a little too glowing. And I don't think they really stopped to think about it too much. But that's also, like I said, could be intentional. I think it's provoking that. Because a lot of reviews on IMDb that I found are like that. I feel like this film provokes that kind of a response. I feel like it does. Because it, a lot of the reviews I found are like this. They're high. This is a pretty well-liked film. It's pretty well-loved. Mm-hmm. And, and I would not be surprised if there was some sort of pseudo-sequel in the future or a sequel. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, and there are some things in here that he did mention that we didn't, or they mentioned that we didn't quite get a chance to touch on, like the soundtrack or the color palette of the last act of the film or like how there's so many things that we didn't touch on. Very um, Suspiria in oh yeah in the third act with the the lights yes yeah very argento like inspired third act and just a really 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 cool finale like one of my favorite finales of all time um with very little bombast it's quite subdued compared to the rest of the movie which is appropriate so Mm -hmm. um yeah that's our imdb roundup i wouldn't say soul rending 
Uh, yeah, that one not, wasn't too bad. This one wasn't too bad. Annihilation was one that was a, a literal just, you know, getting kicked off the side of a of a face of a mountain. So <laughs> that was a rough one. That was you a know, rough IMDb roundup. I find, because you were talking about how glowing that, that last review was, it, and I don't think I had thought about it before you said that, but I am someone who will tend to boost a score like in my head to a low budget or indie film mm-hmm. and almost reduce a score for a big budget film of I don't know equal stature right. in regards to the quality. Right. So like, resources available to them. Exactly, exactly. And you know, it's it's probably unfair to do, but like when he gave it a nine, I was like, you know what? I'd probably give it a nine too. And then as you're reading the view, I'm re- I'm thinking to myself, like, why am I giving it a nine though? When if this movie had five times the budget, I'd probably be giving it a high seven, low eight kind of kind of review. But because right. of what is it, was it a five million dollar budget? You know, I, mm. I was like, all right, this is this is a nine. So I don't know. I just thought that was worth worth mentioning. Definitely. Yeah. We're at the crossover. Um, we're going to be talking about who is the guest of the magic, the Orlando magic. Who's the guest right now of maybe even the NBA? Um, who do you guys think? Do you guys think there's a particular person that stands out background, foreground, anywhere in between as being the guest of the Orlando magic or the guest of the NBA right now? So for the Orlando magic, because I, or, all right, I want to preface this bit by saying that I don't think David was a bad person. He just caused uh, a, a lot, lot of trauma harm. to, yeah, to right. uh, an innocent family. Um, he wasn't a bad person. I don't. I've refused to believe he was just programmed to do these things. So uh, that's how I feel about Dwayne Bacon. He's not, he's not. He's not the reason the magic are bad. You he know, by any means. Play enough. He's. he's st- he started a lot of games this year. I think he's he's like right. fourth in scoring on the team. So like yeah. he's what? yeah. God. And all right, that? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a few statistics before I, I get into anything. Off okay. the top of my head, right. they're not exact, but they're close. I looked it up uh, last week when I was uh, arguing with people about why I'd rather stick my genitals in a blender than ever defend Dwayne Bacon. So one of the things I said is he is. We've had 24 players on the Magic this season. All right, he is Jesus third Christ. from the bottom Jesus in Christ. passes made. The easiest thing to do at any level of the game of basketball is pass the ball. I think he's ahead of. I'm not so sure that's true. Depending, yeah, it's true. I think he's ahead of Mo Bamba, who again, he's a guy who doesn't even touch the ball, so of course he's not going to make a lot of passes. And uh, Frank Mason, who we signed to uh, a two-way contract and played like three games with us before he got injured. Right. So he's the guy who, and you know, you guys being Celtics fans, you probably remember two guys that were notorious for doing this as well, Glenn Davis and Brandon Bass. They wouldn't give it up. And I've made the comparison that Dwayne Bacon is just guard form Brandon Bass or guard form Glenn Davis. Just refuses to pass. And when you got a team full of young guys, especially right now, who you'd like to see develop, you know, you want to see RJ Hampton uh, shoot threes, whether he makes them or not, if he's open, 
let him have it. Same right. with Cole Anthony. Uh, prior to that, you were trying to compete for the playoffs. Your best player is Nikola Vucevic. Behind him, you had Evan Fournier and Aaron Gordon as 1B and 2B. There is no reason why Dwayne Bacon should be driving to the basket when he's got Vooch open on the top of the key, uh, Aaron Gordon cutting baseline, and Evan Fournier just kind of waiting around. You know, that's kind of what he did on the Magic. He just waited around until the ball got to him. Yeah. There's I no mean, reason. Yeah, he's a spot shooter. That's, yeah. that's how that works. Yeah, so it just destroyed any semblance of an offense. He He ripped it apart. He hurt people, you know, uh, yeah. especially Magic fans. He dealt damage. And yeah, yeah, and I don't like, again. I don't think he's a bad guy, but he's caused a lot of harm, a, a, a whole lot of harm. So yeah, <laughs> I'm choosing, I'm choosing Bacon. You can also argue, uh, Magic fans would argue that it was Evan Fournier, uh, but that's not his fault. He was being asked to do too much. So right, right. I I think that's a fair assessment. Um, Liam, you have any thoughts who the guest is? Guest of the Magic, guest of the NBA, anything in between? I mean, in terms of strict comparison, like, those two certainly aren't bad. It's really, it's the DeVos family. It's ownership. It's systemic rot. (sighs) Yeah. That hasn't been dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't seem clear when it's going to be get dealt with. Ugly truth. Ugly yeah. truth. And they're like, like they should be furnishing the money to chase people. I mean, yeah, it's not always glamorous to go to a place like Orlando, but like you still get to Florida, no income tax. Um, like there's still perks you can sell in Orlando, even if you can't sell the same ones as you would in Miami. Mm hmm. And Absolutely. If ownership truly valued the team, they would be shelling out the money to do that. They don't. They view it basically as a money money laundering setup. Right. Yeah. That's for kind all of, their insane dominionist bullshit. Yeah, that's like ninety five percent of the problem, if not more. And it's the the elephant in the room that no one yeah. wants to talk about. The call ever. is coming from inside the house. So it's, I want to say. Exactly. Because I agree with the sentiment entirely. I don't think it's based in reality. Because the Magic, prior to the trades, had one of the highest team payrolls uh, for the last few years. Um, Yeah, they're paying for the wrong people. No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just wanted to to throw that out there. And they did the last time the DeVos family wanted to spend a shitload of money was after the 2009 finals run. Um, And they, again, they paid the wrong people. So mm-hmm. it seems to be right. one, of, one of the issues, one of the issues with the Either magic way, it's still failure at the top, I guess. Well, yeah. One of the things I wanted to add is, so I don't know how familiar you guys are, but there's been a guy running the show for the last few years named Alex Martins. He's, I want to say he started in marketing in 1988, 1989, something around there. I know him. He replaced but, yeah. Hennigan, right? No, no. He replaced a guy named John Weisbrod, who was, uh, <sighs> I don't know what what his position was, CEO or whatever of the Orlando Magic. Anyway, he is an extension of the DeVos family. And from the time we traded Dwight up until, what, two and a half, three years ago, he was running the whole show, which 
tells me that the DeVos family, um, not Richard DeVos, the son, uh, one of his sons, was giving directives to uh, Alex Martins, who doesn't know a, a goddamn thing about sports at all. Like He's a marketing guy. He doesn't know anything about basketball or how the game should be played. Right. You know, it's part of why you saw uh, Tobias Harris get traded for Brandon Jennings and her son, Elisova. Why you for saw nothing. Oh, I was yeah. thinking about that last night. For yeah. nothing. Yeah. Because they trusted Scott Skiles, who played for the Magic in the 90s, and they were familiar with him. And this is what yep. Skiles, Scott Skiles wanted. So, like, oh, this guy knows basketball. If he's saying this is the move we need to make, this is the move we make. Right. Uh, they did the same thing, Oladipo and Sabonis, no. for... Uh, what uh, Serge Ibaka, who then turned into Terrence Ross and the second round oh pick, God. which was the then Sergi. used to get, uh, I think that was used to get Markel Fultz, which whatever. Still, no matter I how good Markel Fultz that... is, it's just never, it's never going to be as good as Sabonis and Oladipo. So, no. I almost said that the Serge Ibaka trade was the guest. Yeah, no, you know, the no, trade no. of Depot and Sabonis That's good. and a pick That's good. to get one mm-hmm. year. Search buck. Yeah, and a lot of people will blame Rob Hennigan, but like that last year that he was there, you know, nothing that happened there is reminiscent of everything that he had done prior to that. That was all, you know, marketing. You just traded Oladipo and Sabonis for a big name, Ibaka. You think you can sell tickets with Ibaka? You signed Bismack Biombo because he was going into that offseason as a "Quote unquote big name." He had just had a great series no, for the he Raptors. Wasn't. He had one exactly. He, he was on that Rob Raptors team on a fucking vet minimum deal. Yep. And he just had those fucking twenty block games in the playoffs or whatever. It was yeah. Awful. Yeah. You know that that exact expression is uh, how Magic fans still talk about that yeah. to this day. You know, so it's just uh, a lot of things went wrong, and a lot of it is at the hands of the DeVos family meddling where they have no business meddling. Right. Which seems to be a trend for the franchise in the past eight years, six years. It's longer than that. because It's longer than that. With the exception of, you know, obviously the T-Mac era was its own thing that was kind of hampered by injuries to Grand Hill and not having money to go after anybody to help T-Mac, like, uh, and then the the Dwight Howard run, uh, again, it was just poor management, like all around. Like that window that you had with Dwight Howard could have lasted a few more years had you spent money on the right right kind of players. You know what I mean? That rebuild post-Dwight may have been shortened had you hired a competent coach. If you kept Stan or, you know, yeah. hired anyone else other than Jacques Vaughn. But you signed Jacques Vaughn. Why? Because you know Jacques Vaughn. He played for you. You know, so again... Just bad, bad management, bad choices, bad ownership. Yeah. I can't wait for them to sell the team so I don't have to feel as guilty about supporting the team, truthfully. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. So is that everything said? I think you covered a great, I think between you and Liam, you covered a great sort of past, present. And now I want to talk just very briefly, very briefly, potential future. Is that, is that the best feature? Is just selling is it- the team outright? Um, is there another path for the magic or what has this season, even though it's not closed by any stretch, but I mean, it is in a lot of ways for a lot of teams, 
what has this taught us about the magic? What do we know about the future? Like, what are the what is the way out uh, effectively for the magic? Uh, I mean, it, it. I couldn't even tell you because it just everything going on right now is so new. It's the first time that the magic have committed to a di- direction since probably the early years of Dwight, like shortly thereafter, like he was drafted. Um, they haven't really had a direction. It's just been like, be good enough to sell tickets. You know, if you can get to the finals, we'll give you money to try to compete further, but we just want you to be good enough to sell tickets. And this seems to signify like, all right, well, that's not good enough anymore. Like we have to build from the ground up because, uh, we want to win a championship by 2030. That's what, uh, Alex Martin said, I don't think it's going to happen, but like, if that's a goal you, you set 15 years ago, then you got to kind of follow through because if not, you're going to catch a lot more heat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I it just, it's, it's still relatively new. It's like, I mean, you guys can probably speak to it as Celtics fans. Like after, after trying to keep the legacy of big three live, you know, as they started getting older, you had to commit to a direction, you know, and I'm sure right. that was kind of uncharted territory in a lot of ways. You know, how many times uh, have the Celtics had to to rebuild? You know, not many. And you guys did it pretty quick because you committed to a direction. Right. And that direction was contentious, to say the least, among fans, where people were, like, making a lot of really bullshit, insane comments about who should and shouldn't be on the team. I mean, they're still doing it. They want to get rid of Jason Tatum. Like, are you fucking dumb? Guys like that don't grow on trees. Oh, actual fan wants to get rid of Jason Tatum. That yeah. is just talk radio shit. That's just yeah. Sean doing his he hasn't earned it, blah 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 bullshit. That actually is that's a good that's a good point. Actually. Yeah, that's a good point. That that leads us into our potential new segment too, is NBA reading series for dummies and very cool people. Um that's that Shaughnessy. Yeah. Any column, book, or tweet ever written by Dan Shaughnessy is atrocious. Yeah, Absolutely he, atrocious. Is he like a Celtics beat writer? No, no. He is just a general Boston sports writer. He started with the Red Sox. He's the guy who basically, like, the curse of, short version is, the curse of the Bambino never existed. Dan Shaughnessy made it up to sell a book. It was never true. He admitted it years later. But and it informed everything he ever wrote about the Red Sox until they finally broke the curse. And so he's he just intermittently pontificates about like whichever team he's always the least critical of the Patriots. Big surprise. Although he's probably going to be more critical of them in in this era now that uh, Cam Newton is there. Um, can't wait for that. Um, so he's that type of guy. He's that person. He's that type of guy. That's it's literally because he was trolling uh, Tom Brady. I mean, he just that. wants attention, and he gets it. Like yeah, he gets he does. it. Like I'm talking about him. I don't want to be talking about him, but I'm I'm talking about him. Yeah. Well, because like, he's a dummy. He's not very cool. He's a dummy, and, and he has the worst the hair ever. Dan Shaughnessy. He is truly, truly, like. The man who gives a bad reputation for Boston itself, Dan Shaughnessy. Yeah, he has truly horrible hair. Okay, so (laughs) and his bad hair. And the other end of the spectrum, you were saying, Liam, Mark Stein. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I've re- I always really like Stein's newsletter. Um, I get it once a week from the New York Times. And it's a, always just a good general roundup of just news and broader topics he's interested in and occasionally like just some random stats uh of the day or like a random stat that might have a connection to a historical stat from some of the times stuff like that usually um i think i think he does one of the best uh nba newsletters good stuff all right so check it out if you can i just add something to the mark stein thing of course yeah i love mark stein but i had i had to mute him because during trade season, he became one of my guys. Like, oh, I got to put on all notifications. Uh, and it got to the point, like, I was not getting trade, you know, rumors anymore. And it was just like, his opinions and stuff. I was like, I don't want these. I don't, I don't need about right soccer. He's not talking about the NBA. Yeah. And so, like, it just got me so frustrated that I was getting all these notifications. And it was just Mark Stein talking about whatever Mark Stein wants to talk about. <laughs> right, right. The Mark Stein world. Yeah. Mark Stein extended extended cinematic universe, if you will. <laughs> Classic. Played I don't by have any... Helen Mirren. Played, played by, by Helen Mirren. By Michael uh, Sheen. Michael Sheen. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything to contribute to the series, but uh, maybe we'll revisit it more in the future with a distinct reading piece. I think it would probably be a, a better option, but NBA reading series for dummies and very cool people. We have a dummy right, and a I very cool person. So Say something about that? It does, yes, do, please. Do books count? Oh, absolutely. Plug it, plug it. Yeah, tell us so, about it. So there's a, a former NBA player named Paul Shirley. Um, he's made uh, a couple questionable remarks uh, maybe a decade or so ago. So like tread lightly there is about the, the earthquake in Haiti. I think he just tried to make a, a joke and it was just very poor taste. But mm. he wrote a book he, called Can I Keep My Jersey? And... Uh, I bought it for a couple friends for Christmas, and I, I'd read it when I first came out. I want to say like 2007. Essentially, he played maybe like 30, 40 NBA games, bounced around from team to team to team, summer league, training camps, just could never catch a break, played a lot in Europe. And uh, it's just a story about like his time trying to make the league and all that. And it's one of the funniest books I've ever read. And if you have like any interest in the NBA, like he doesn't outwardly name all the players uh you know but he has a good story about kobe and shaq uh talks a little bit about the hypocrisies of the nba players how like they'll have uh tattoos on their arm uh reciting like bible verses but then they're going and having one night stands with people that aren't their wives you know after the game things like that gives you a good insight of what it's like playing in europe and stuff and when i saw your little notes about like NBA reading, like I had to recommend it because it's just, it's such okay. a fantastic book. And it's that an easy read awesome. too. It's not difficult. It's an easy read. Yeah. Yeah. Super like fun, kind of like pop reading and like just like, yeah, that's awesome. No, anything like that I think is, is a great, is a great thing to plug here. Um, I haven't anything, I haven't had anything to plug for NBA reading in a while actually. Uh, so if I come across something, I'll definitely either link it to the pod account or save it for the next episode, but, um, probably be something cool and new to do. 
All right. I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Anybody have anything cool to plug uh, as of this time? Uh, obviously, all of John's uh, pods uh, will be linked in the episode notes. But anybody have anybody anything cool to plug or anything they thought was uh, really neat uh, recently they read or engaged with or whatever, watched anything? I do not. Not really. No, I mean, I... I told you guys i saw that movie nobody that was that was fun that was exciting I w- that was the first time i've gone to the movie theaters since october of last year which i probably shouldn't have done i saw synchronic uh in theaters but like it was a nice little return to to normalcy oh, right yeah, yeah empty Netflix. theater was awesome so same i don't really have anything uh anything else all right great well we will see you next time uh thank you for listening and uh we'll see you then bye It's Mike Whalen, and it's time for the Oscar nominee odd thing. Yeah, number one, best actor. Who will win? Chadwick Boseman, minus 1,200. Who should win? That's a fake idea. Uh, best actress. Who will win? Viola Davis, Rhode Island College. Let's go. Who should win? Viola Davis, Rhode Island College. Let's go. Best adapted screenplay. Who cares? Best animated feature film. Don't know any of them. Best animated short film. Let's go with opera plus 450. That seems cool. Hey, Tenant, let's go. Best cinematography. It'll go to the rider minus 335. 
best costume design. Upset alert, bet your house on Emma, 334 plus 334. Best director, Chloe Zhao for The Rider, minus 2,000, that's a lot. Best documentary feature, My Octopus Teacher. Best documentary short, uh, Colette, that's sort of a Pontypool reference, let's go with that, plus 2,000. Best film editing, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Are you or serious? Or like The Trial of, you're gonna lose all seven noms. Uh, we're gonna go with The Father. You're not even related that was actually to... sick. It's plus 2,000, we're gonna make bank. Best international film feature, another round, druck, 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 go watch it, minus 1,000. Oscar Futures, best live short action film, The Present? I said no! Uh, it won't be a present because it won't win. Let's go with Two Distant Strangers, plus 150. Best makeup, Mank, plus 2,000. Best original score, hey, I bet Trent Reznor is gonna win this. He's nominated twice. Uh, screenplay, no. Uh, best original song, uh, Fight For You, maybe? Uh, best picture, oh, it's the big one. Uh, that's gonna go to, uh, let's, Promising Young Woman, J -j -j Joker Mode. Uh, for production design, that's, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, plus 650. Best sound, Mank, 1,000, plus 1,000. Best supporting actress, Sasha Baron Cohen, plus 1,400. And best supporting actress, we are going with Maria Bakalova, plus 450. Joker mode. Oh, best visual effects, uh, Tenet, Tenet, Tenet. Go, Go watch, watch it! it!